the rera of this too, July 1st, 1998. Nothing is so esoteric as academia. In this world, any argument can be made to explain most things that don't truly require explanation, and any furthering of knowledge will require adjustment in the future. Would it be trite to say that knowledge is temporary? A man is born who knows this well. He isolates himself from society. He spends most of his time puzzling, probing the meaning of hidden icons and symbols. Now he's attempting to master the mysteries of Chinese ideographs a language entirely composed of icons and symbols. Instead of launching into a full classical study of the language though, he attempts to break the code by himself, in isolation again, hoping that his discoveries will match those that have existed historically and then go beyond them into forgotten regions no scholar could ever push into. He reasons that a direct approach is basic and inherent in civilization, and that he will surely stumble upon the right path since it will eventually, with enough work, become self-evident. In his study, or laboratory, as some would call it, he is forging ahead, looking at a newspaper or a book bought in Chinatown. He starts with the most basic words and works his way through them. This character that looks like a man, well, it must mean man. This character that looks like a grain of rice, it must mean a grain of rice. This character that looks like a bird, well, it could be a bird or a dragon. Soon he knows or can guess the meaning of any sentence he sees. And if he pieces together a meaning for a sentence that doesn't make sense in conjugation with the others, he adapts his thinking and finds a new way to understand it. This is the lie and the logic of language, recognition, cognition, and dialecticism. With time, the man gains enough confidence to write a short story in Chinese. He chooses a Chinese pen name, which he believes means boathouse, but actually means chaos 100 times over. The story can be read two ways, one across, one down. On top of that, each way can have two alternate readings, one literal and one allegorical. So, in a sense, this one story is actually four stories. Vertically, it may literally be about an exiled poet yearning for his homeland, but allegorically, it may also tell how the ignorant man knows more than the scholar. 
horizontally, the story is about a farmer who farms his fields with human manure and grows plants that can talk crap. While, on a different level, it may also be about a bird that pecks at human corpses for so long that after one great battle, it actually develops human speech and ambitions. The writer is proud of his story, which is a success every way that it can be looked at. After some time, he discovers that his story has actually been translated into Japanese by a famous Japanese scholar. The fact that this scholar is famous means nothing to the man, for he knows nothing of famous people, famous scholars, much less the world outside of his study and the real society of the senses. He receives a small royalty check in the mail, upon which he writes a letter to the Japanese scholar translator in classical Chinese demanding a meeting. The Japanese scholar cannot understand the man's letter, since it is written in a unique style, the esoteric meaning belonging to the sheer fancy of a man with no notion of real Chinese meanings or approximation. Sure, this is true even in Japanese, which takes pure historical Chinese characters and adapts them as much as possible to Japanese usage, but it's still tough to read. Confusion persists between these two men, even though they're focused on roughly the same field of study. And after some time, an agent of the original author contacts the agent of the translator. The agents agree that there should be a meeting, and it occurs one spring when the cherry blossoms are blooming all over Japan. The Japanese scholar, a refined man, regards his colleague and opponent, a vile, slovenly man who carries about him a musty odor, as if he were a walking parchment. The discussion goes poorly. But soon a local television producer learns of the conflict erupting privately between these two scholars, and uses his celebrity status to spin the conflict into a matter of public interest. Soon, everybody knows the names of the translator and the writer, and their faces graze the evening news regularly. The writer does not speak Chinese or Japanese, and can communicate solely by writing Chinese characters. Words that together make no sense to any Chinese or Japanese person, only to the man and his cultural linguistic universe of one. Through translators, the truth is finally known. The writer doesn't understand why certain meanings are not the way he understands them rationally, for he has given his life to studying this language. There is an explanation for every meaning he inferred as correct. And he can explain his meaning thoroughly or with conviction, even if no one understands this explanation other than himself.
the scholar, becoming angrier and angrier in debate, can cite nothing but dead historical proofs for meanings. He fears that if he loses the debate and people support the writer, a far-reaching modernization of the meanings and symbolisms of the Chinese language will erupt, and the entire language will have to be reformed, with the characters becoming public domain and open for manipulation and adaptation. He attacks the background of the writer. He calls up historical scholars to defend the definition of words that he uses in the way that he does. A realization begins to grow in his heart of the scholar, so that on the final day of the debate, he smuggles a katana sword into the TV studio and steals his heart for public murder. Just as the debate is about to open, his opponent whips out a gun, pulls the trigger.